This is Stacy Finney sitting in for Loud Fast Philly. Today is June 25th, 2014, and I am sitting here in South Philadelphia with Rich Kaufman, uh, most well known from Electric Love Muffin and Rolling Hayseeds. Hi, Rich. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for being here today. We've hijacked my parents' house in South Philadelphia, um, so hopefully we don't have too many interruptions <laughs> today. But let's get started. Can you tell me when and where you were born? I was born in South Miami, uh, 1964, uh, Beatles baby. Okay. Yeah. Were your parents big Beatles fans? No, they were sort of pre-rock. Okay. My mom saw Elvis, but my dad went into the service before rock happened, and so he sort of missed the rock and roll but express. You were, you were born during that era? Yes. In South Miami. So your mom and dad, do you have siblings? I have two older brothers, um, three and two years older than me, and then a younger sister, five and a half years younger. And what are your parents' names? My mom is uh, Sandy, and uh, she passed away uh, 12 years ago. Sorry and my dad that. is still 81, Charles, and he's still living on his own, self-sufficient. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about your parents. What did they do when you were growing up? Did they both work? Was your mom a traditional homemaker in the 60s? Uh, my mom stayed at home, you know, with three boys and a girl. It was, we almost killed her. I think it was hard work for her. <laughs> It is a lot of hard work. <laughs> and um, my dad was a uh, graphic artist um, and map maker. So he Neat. first he worked in Miami, and then when we moved up north, he, uh, he worked out in Philadelphia and then out in Ambler, okay. uh, doing like urban renewal map making and stuff. Neat. Yeah. Very neat. So tell me a little bit about Young Rich and growing up in Miami. First of all, how long did you live in Miami? We didn't live there too long. We were only there for about three years, but I spent every summer in the Keys with my grandparents. Just okay. about. So I had a real connection with South Florida. Mm -hmm. um, then we moved up, lived in Jersey for a couple of years, and then um, moved over to suburban, like North Wales, Lansdale mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. Suburbs of Philadelphia. Suburbs. Okay. So what were you like as a child? Describe young Rich. I was, you know, the third child. You know, so I was constantly, you know, I had the older brother, the oldest brother who was the, could do anything, the middle brother who was sort of the troublemaker, mm -hmm. and I was just trying to fly under the radar. Um, and did that work? It did work. Did and you I, get away with a lot? I got away with a lot because I think both my brothers made a lot of mistakes, and I made the same mistakes, but because I think by the time I came around, my parents... They've given up by that point. Well, yeah, they sort of were focused more on my younger sister, oh, okay. kind of, I think, keeping her sheltered a little mm -hmm. bit. So I, I was able to get away with, I think, a little bit more. What kind of things did you get away with? I think Anything just, notable? You know, just, you know, I was given a lot, of, a lot of rope to hang myself, a lot of free, a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't really question my comings and goings, mm -hmm. which worked out well, I guess, if I had had like, an addictive personality, I could have grown up and... Sure, could become, always go in either yeah, I direction. Yeah, you know, become addicted to drugs, but luckily that never happened. So, um, but it was, you know, we, it was a suburban, by the time I graduated, North Wales was pretty suburban. Mm -hmm. When we first moved there, my dad envisioned it as a, you know, it was a town surrounded by farms. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
suburban sprawl in the 12 years we were there just sort of exploded. And even now, have you been back there recently? I Not mean, really, just, but yeah, it's... It's all, you know, those those contained developments and mm -hmm. all the farmland has really been yeah. taken over. So it was a great place to grow up because yeah. you could you could get out to, you know, places to get away mm -hmm. and, you know, trails and yeah. stuff, which and aren't there anymore. No, and that was fairly rural for, yeah. you know, and, and that was what, the early 70s? Yeah, we moved there in 71. Okay. So, it, you know, by 82, it had really sort of exploded. Yeah. Where did you go to high school? <clears throat> North Penn. North uh, Penn. Go Knights. <laughs> what was that like? It was, you know, a, it was sort of like, you know, dazed and confused, that high school. Freaks and Geeks. Mm -hmm. It was just a huge mega suburban high school, feeder school with, um, we had a swimming pool and a planetarium and, um, you know, pretty liberal, um, pretty liberal rules. You know, I think, you know, you could, kids could smoke outside and pretty open, you know, pot smoking going on, I remember. And <laughs> Not you know I mean it was sort of like it was, it was just, the 70s. It was the 70s into the 80s and like it was Did amazing. Did you have a lot of like um, you know hippie type teachers or I mean some just, hippie type know. teachers? We had one teacher that got busted for for smoking in the parking lot with the kids smoking weed. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, uh, just a lot went a lot went on that would never happen today. Mm -hmm. I mean, did you feel like it was because of because of being on the heels of the 60s that things were just more open and liberal and accepted yeah I feel like you know that it's really a lost period in history that sort of era when there was so much divorce mm -hmm. um, post 60s I think there was just there was just a lot of we say freedom but I just feel like it was more like people just didn't want to put down boundaries so there was Chaos. A, <laughs> that short time when we were allowed to do anything we anything. wanted yeah yeah um, and and you said there were you know freaks and geeks how would you categorize yourself in high school? What what group would you put yourself in? Um, I don't know. I guess I was sort of, you know I was a freak and a geek because I definitely I didn't really fit in, but I wasn't you know a super great student. Um, Did you like school? Uh, not particularly, you know. But um, I mean I liked social studies and I liked English, but you know it was um, a weird place. I mean we. It was suburban Philadelphia, but it it could have been the South. Everybody listened to Leonard Skinner and mm -hmm. stuff like that, so it was really easy to sort of thumb your nose at it and look for another path. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what you did, which yeah. we, we will get to today, right. right? So, what other things were you interested in as a young boy? Did you play sports, or did did music start for you very early? Um, I loved you know pop music. You know, I loved all that. Early '70s bubblegum. When I was little, mm -hmm. I still, I don't think you ever escaped that sort of music you listen to when you're that age. Mm -hmm. You know all the words when you hear it on the radio. Yeah, <laughs> you know those, you know Jackson Five, and mm -hmm. you know all this stuff you heard on WFIL. Mm -hmm. um, we Willie Weber. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the sweet, DJ from yeah. yeah, and all those groups <laughs> just loved all that stuff. Um, you know, you know the Beatles were always my favorite group. I mean, that was the first record I owned was Abbey Road. How old were you? Um, five or six. I mean, it was, I think it was, you know, I was given money and mm -hmm. went to Grants or Corvettes or something and bought it, and bought you know, right album. off the rack. And buying it, I remember buying it because my brother 
kind of tricked me into buying it because he wanted it. And he didn't have the money, but I had birthday money. So it was sort of like... You, you have know, to love older siblings right. for that. They really know how to work that. But in the end, you know, it's an album that I've probably owned five or six it's times over. So. so that was your earliest um, memory of, of musical influence was mm -hmm. the Beatles. So were, were your older brothers, I guess, an influence then over the music that you listened to? Did they introduce yeah. you to a lot of stuff? You know what? You know, my they introduced me to like you know heavy metal, mm -hmm. you know Deep Purple stuff like that, Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. And then when my brother went off to college, he was the one who brought home the first punk records that I really, you know, I knew what punk was, but it, there was nobody really listening to it in our town. Do you remember how old you were? <clears throat> um, I guess maybe you know eighth grade maybe. Okay. And what um, did he bring home? Do you remember? He brought home the first Clash album and the Rocket to Russia, Ramones. <laughs> Clash are just the gateway right. to all things pop. And I think he brought a Graham Parker <laughs> record home. You know, he brought some, uh -huh. you know, new wave t sort of stuff as well. So, you know. What did you think when you heard it? Well, yeah, the Ramones were, it's hard not to like the Ramones. And I remember just, you know, liking the fact that the music got a reaction from people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you mentioned it, people either were interested in it or they really had a visceral dislike for it. Right. So it was kind of neat to be the person who was like, you know. Into it. Into it, yeah. yeah. People just didn't get it. They just, no. you know, they, they didn't understand it. They just immediately cast it off, I think, and mm -hmm. rejected it. But the Ramones really, I mean, catchy three-chord yeah. songs. Um, so, so around eighth grade is really when you started getting into alternative music and, yeah. and punk stuff. Where did it go from there? Um, well, there wasn't a whole lot of people, you know, to, that listened to it. So, you know, I turned friends on to it, and I was still listening to, you know, ACDC and stuff mm -hmm. like that as well, so mm -hmm. it wasn't like I'd, I'd, I had immersed myself in it. Um, but I remember, you know, I think we, 10th or 11th grade, doing a talent show band, Richie Creighton and the Phoebes, which was sort of just... <laughs> Did you come up with that name? Yeah, it was just a stupid name for a talent show. <laughs> And, you know, was it based on anything? I mean, just randomly came up with the name. Or? Yeah, okay. I think you know. I think I saw it in like a, a cartoon book. Uh -huh. You know, Cretans and Phoebes, and I thought, wow, what a great name for a band. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, there was something in my mind that like the idea of you know how easy it could be to start a punk band, mm -hmm. even though I didn't play guitar. I didn't really. So at that point, you hadn't, you weren't. Had had you ever played any instruments or had any really. musical? You Lessons know, of sorts. I sang in the. My dad was a choir director, so I sang in the okay. Episcopal choir growing up. Okay. But that didn't really help me out much in punk rock. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't really prepare you for the no. vocals that you need for punk or the speed right. that you need to sing at. So, so tell me about this the the band, the high school band. It was a battle of the bands. Yeah, we you know we were it was like a one off, and we got we got it was a gong show actually. We got. Did you play your own music, or did you? No, I think cover? we did. A, we did a, an ACDC cover. I think we did um, the Jack by ACDC, okay. and we got mercilessly gone. Didn't go over well. Yeah, there was you know <laughs> some bands playing um, King you, songs who you know everybody loved. And yeah, yeah. Were you singing? Were you playing guitar at that point? I was what? singing and dressed outlandishly. Uh huh. Were you wearing the psychedelic um, shirts that I remember you best for? Or I remember just <laughs> grabbing like all kinds of. All, there was no real set sort of style. Mm -hmm. It was very loud and kind of. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of glitter. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't really have a plan yet. <laughs> Sometimes those are the best yeah. plans. So, so you had started listening. You were getting exposed to some of the various types of yeah. punk music. Did, did you kind of have a sense at, at that point or by high school that not only was there this music, but kind of, you know... Um, backlash against society and, and sort of way of thinking, you know, that, that came along with this music? Um, well, yeah, I mean, with the, you know, because, you know, I remember listening to the Clash stuff my brother brought, it was, you know, I mean, it was kind of a charge that he was a band that was really singing about, even if, you know, looking back, some of the politics were a little naive, at least it mm -hmm. seemed like, at the time, it seemed really urgent mm -hmm. to like a 10th grader, it was like, wow, this is really important mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so, yeah, I did. I did catch that, and I just liked that. You know, I remember just being disappointed with so much the music. I remember loving the first Cars album. The second one came out. I immediately said, "This is terrible," mm -hmm. and everybody was like, "What? No way! This is a great band." And I was like, "You know, and history has proven that they they had one good album." But, right. But I remember thinking, like, <laughs> everybody's back. just sort of following. You know, accepting. Everybody spoon puts out a record, and it's like they have to love it. And I was like, mm -hmm. "Well, no, you have to." You have to question it. And this mm -hmm. is, you know, this band is obviously phoning it in now. Or, and I don't mean to just pick on them, but... Sure. But I remember okay. thinking, you know, more and more becoming just dissatisfied with what I was hearing on the radio. Mm -hmm. and, and getting a lot of pushback from people in my high school who, you know, you just didn't... You know, you they had didn't to, get you it. You had to kind of fall in line with... Right. You were either a deadhead or right. you were a metalhead. Right. And you had to kind of... You couldn't question that, you know, when In Through the Outdoor came out. I remember just thinking, this is terrible. And I liked Led Zeppelin mm -hmm. growing up, but I thought, you yeah, know, there's just not much yeah. here. Yeah. And, you know, people got angry, you know, really angry that I... So it was sort of like that was, you know... Was there anyone that you identified with at high school that kind of felt the same way? Well, there was, and I started to, you know, I met a couple, I started to meet people, I'd see them at the mall, at the mm -hmm. record store, you'd be picking through the little New Wave punk <laughs> section, and you'd see somebody the else there. Crate. Right. <laughs> And, you know, you'd see, you know, whatever, you know, somebody else looking at an XTC record or... Uh, right. And you'd say, oh, that's, is that a good record? So... So did you start buying that stuff up? Yeah, you know, yeah. it was the only stuff there was. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even if it was so ska what, records or mm -hmm. anything, you know, it was just whatever looked like it was from somewhere else that wasn't the same 12 right. albums that everybody owned. Right. And it almost seems like a domino effect in hearing some of these interviews and just in talking to people in general about the early record buying days, it's almost like a domino effect. You know, you sort of discover one band and that leads to another band and, yeah. you know, and, and so on and so forth. And then you have all these splinters of sort of subgenres, you know, of punk and hardcore music. Yeah. Where, you know, it's like British punk and, you know, American hardcore and or stuff like that. like Nick Lowe, like finding Nick Lowe and then yeah. seeing him on the stiff, finding out about the stiff label mm -hmm. and then finding all that music mm -hmm. and then you know, realized that there was this whole scene, and it wasn't necessarily punk, but it wasn't commercial rock. It was right. it was its right. own thing. It was its own underground. Yeah. So, what were your early favorites? Like, what stuff really got you hooked? Um, I liked all the, you know, the, I did, you know, the early British pub rock stuff. I liked, you know, the Nick Lowe, mm -hmm. Elvis, Graham Parker, mm -hmm. Eddie and the Hot Rods, all that stuff. Because it was, you know, there was a clear connection to just old rock and roll. So mm -hmm. it wasn't that hard to put that on for somebody and say, well, you know, listen to this next to any other rock record and tell me that this band, you know, Rock Pile, isn't just as good. Right. 
And then, you know, I started, I, I was working at West Point Park, what amusement is, park. What is, okay. Is and that in New Jersey? No, it was in uh, right near North Wales. Oh, It's okay. a really old rickety park with a rickety old roller coaster. I've never heard of it. Okay. And I met um, one guy who was also into punk and new wave. So we, you know, we had kind of hit it off. And I think he was the one who actually encouraged me to co come into the city and go to a punk show. Like, he hadn't done it, but he needed somebody to go with. How know? old were you? What year was this that? This was like, I guess, 81. Do you remember what venue and what um, show you saw? I remember we came in and saw, I think the first time we came in was Black Flag at Elks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt, I remember feeling like, sort of like a tourist mm -hmm. because it was like, there was a, a, core, a core scene there. Definitely. And, and you know, I, did, I still look sort of like a suburban kid. Mm -hmm. But I remember just, you know, the energy was so, you know, you go from being somebody who goes to a, the spectrum to see concerts. Right. Where the guards are telling you where to sit. Right. It's very subdued. And, here and then all kids of a sudden, yeah, it's like... It's complete and utter insanity. Yeah. Right. What, um, did your parents know that you came into town to, to go yeah, see Yeah, well, that, was a, that went with the whole thing of just being given free reign. I'd been coming into the city for... Me and friends would just get on a train sometimes and just come in and walk around So mm -hmm. for years. So mm -hmm. they didn't really question what I, you know... Yeah. What did they, what did they think about the music that you were listening to? Um... I didn't really, you know, my dad, like I said, he wasn't even into rock, so I think it all sort of, you know, he, he actually had a good ear for music. I mean, he actually, we were watching Saturday Night Live when Elvis Costello was on that first mm -hmm. time, when he mm -hmm. cut the song short, mm -hmm. and he said, that guy's pretty good. I was like, you know, this is my dad who <laughs> listens to the Ink Spots. And he saw Joe Jackson, an early Joe Jackson thing, and he said, yeah. that guy's got talent. And that's the only two people, like, you know, I could play, you know, my brother would try to push, you know, prog rock on him. He'd like, uh -huh. listen to, yes, these guys use classical music. And my dad was just like, this doesn't do it for me. I don't want to hear this. Or, Were you into the prog rock scene? No, I hated no. it. Now, now, this is your other brother that was into prog rock. Yeah, my middle brother, who was the stoner at the time. <laughs> yes, the deadhead stoner. <laughs> and then your older brother, was he still into punk when you were... Well, he was into it. He was a, like a, a punk. He just, he just he was all, he went off to college, mm -hmm. and he was in Atlanta, and he was exposed to it. Okay. And he liked it, you know, and he was, going, he was into music, okay. and he enjoyed all kinds of music. Hmm. But he wasn't, you know, a punk rocker. He was just right. somebody who was in, liked it. So, I mean, what did you think about that whole scene at Elk Center when you were there? I mean, beside feeling kind of like an outsider, I mean, definitely there was that whole BYO, you had sadistic exploits at that yeah. point, and that whole scene. I mean, were you intimidated by it, or did you... A little, but I knew I wanted to come back, because it was, you know, I remember trying to tell people about it. I said, you cannot believe what we did this weekend. <laughs> and they were like, Black Flag, never heard of it. Right, Even right. though there had been an article, I remember, in the Inquirer, mm -hmm. Ken Tucker was writing for the Inquirer mm -hmm. at the time, and he right. wrote articles about Black Flag and X and all these early shows that mm -hmm. I first went to, saying that these are great bands that need to be seen. Were you I, reading the Inquirer at that time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember, yeah. you know, seeing it and then telling my friends, that's the band you like, yeah. you know? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's go to the show. So, you know, we started, we saw X that summer. Where did X play? I don't they played at the Arts Bank, which okay. is now the Arts Bank. It was called Long March. Right, it was Long March at yeah. that point. Um, so from there, you knew you wanted to come back. So what happens next? I mean, because you, you ultimately wind up at Temple University, I know, because I remember you from there. Um, 
So talk to me a little bit about the in-between from high school and then kind of moving to Philly. Like, were you, you were still coming down for shows? Yeah, well, it's a kind of a weird story. I, I was my senior year of high school, and I kind of didn't really want to go off to college. My parents were like, you're going to college. And so I, you know, picked the state school farthest away from home, mm-hmm. Slippery Rock. Okay. And it was really kind of a stupid, impulsive thing. And when I picked it, I sort of... It was before I had sort of kind of caught the, the bug of, you know, of coming to shows and really enjoying it. And yeah. then in that time period, as, you know, four or five months, I started going to shows. And I think, you know, went to the Dead Kennedys up in Kensington mm-hmm. where they, the neighborhood came out. Yes. Were you injured in that or were you... <laughs> almost, but it was like, that was sort of the, that was sort of like the join or die moment. What it, tell me about it. Talk a little bit about it. I mean, a lot of people that listen to these interviews um, may not know what happened at that show, um, may not be from the area. I know some other people that have been interviewed have yeah. talked about it, but from your perspective, um, what went down? Well, you know, it was, it was up at, I guess it's K&A or mm-hmm. somewhere up Kensington there. Kensington and Allegheny Avenues. Um, I think yeah. the building's still there. It might even be like a flea market or... Who knows what it is, but it's like an old theater. And we heard that, you know, there was, the weird thing was, was there was some problem with the Dead Kennedys and Lee Paris, who was on the, you know, the radio mm-hmm. guy at that time. Right. He was a DJ. And it was, was it Wi-Fi 92? Yeah. Is that what it was I-92. that came out in the early 80s where they tried, you know, they did like make one. a feeble attempt at doing sort of fluffy alternative yeah. music. <laughs> and I remember him saying, we don't know anything about a show. But then a friend of mine, you know, said, you know, I think it's happening at this place. And there was, there was, so there weren't that many people that came out. I mean, it was only a few hundred because it was under mm-hmm. advertised. I was afraid to go there. Yeah, well, you should have been. I was, I think. I didn't know anything. 14, 15. Well, you knew more about neighborhoods in the city than I did. I knew it I was did. happening, but. I knew yeah. that. I didn't really think. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's a white neighborhood. No oh, problem. No. Oh, and no. we get off the subway <laughs> and there's people going, it's that way. And I, you know, I didn't look that crazy. And my friend, you know, he looked a little... But yet they still knew. Do you remember how you were dressed? I mean, I think I had like camo pants on and red Converse and maybe a, you know, Bob Marley shirt or something. You you never really did the whole combat boot, like... Yeah, I got some for a little bit, but you know, I didn't, I definitely had normal hair. I didn't have, I wasn't spiked up or anything. So, you know, we get there and I'm watching, I think it was Informed Sources are playing Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden there's this you know, kind of mix up in the crowd. And I guess some of the locals had gotten in and um, one of the skinheads had just leveled a local and they got him out of the building, but then all of a sudden the whole neighborhood mm-hmm. heard about it and were waiting outside for us to come out. Which is why you don't go to K&A in yeah. the 80s. <laughs> and this, it turns out I, I had known that this had happened the year before mm-hmm. with Black Flag mm-hmm. and SOA. Right. I, I hadn't been at that show, but so, you know, and I just, so remember, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there's like um, Nancy Exploit yes. and stuff is like coming up to us saying, you know, we got to stick together here and sort of being like this moment where and I felt like... what were you thinking? Like, like I got to run. You know, but, you know, it was sort of, you know, feeling like I'm now part of this, you know, like... Yeah, yeah. And, you know... Because you, you were just told by one of the core right, members here's, here's like, of you the know, group. the queen of the, yeah. the scene telling... We got to stick together. Stick together. And I was like, yeah. you got it. We're going to... Yeah, yeah. And... Sure enough, we get out the door, and you know, bottles are flying, and the cops are doing nothing, and somebody pulls up in their car at a hatchback, and 
It says get in our get in the back. And they Did you know? I mean, they, no, were, they were they were you know they were not locals were taking. Okay. <laughs> so they jumped in the back and we're, we're driving away, and these bottles are like flying oh our God. way. Were you frightened at all? I mean, did a you feel like your exciting. safety was really it was in danger? Or, you know, I don't. I don't remember being terribly frightened. I remember just thinking this yeah. was really exciting. Yeah. It's almost like quadrophenia, you know, yeah. when the mods and the rockers meet up and have like you know. It's, or maybe right? I just You're didn't like, realize how little the cops were going to do. Yeah. They saw the cops and I thought, oh, yeah. okay, well, everything's in control. Did you think that there was a certain naivete maybe from, you know, being a suburban youth and, and yeah. not, you know, that what what could really go wrong or how yeah. bad could this really get? Well, the cops are here, you know, what's really going to happen? <laughs> it is Philly. It is Philly. <laughs> I think and you yeah, I didn't know, know those things yet. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, that I remember meeting um, Dan Selton and Phil Commander that time, you know, like meeting people. And actually making talk about who they are because not everybody knows. Um, well, they were South Jersey punks. Uh, mm-hmm. They're Phil and Dan. You know, that's some of the first people I met. Um, and what Phil did, anti anti, I believe was was that his fanzine. fanzine. Uh, my memory for yeah. a lot of the zines blend together. Um, so you're you're probably more on point than yeah. I would be. Yeah, I mean, that. you know, I, I hadn't seen them in years until the Ruin show. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they grew up right down near where I live now. So those were some of your first kind of like friends that you would meet up with in the city? Yeah, well, you know, I met them. And actually also, I, you know, one of the people I'd met at the mall who I first scared me was Jim McMonagle from FOD. <laughs> you know, he's kind of Jim. What was it about Jim that scared you? You know, he had his eyes and, you know. <laughs> he's got a lot of energy. Grinning and, you know. And I but he's so friendly. He is so friendly. But at the time, you were like, who is this guy? And he had like a raincoat on or something. And it he was really The big strange. trench coat, right? It's the whole mod thing going on. And, you know, so yeah. I'd seen him at, I saw him at the mall once or twice. And then I saw him at, you know, at the Dead Kennedys. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, well, this person lives near me, so we should. And I right, remember. Because he was in Ambler, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. 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 So by the end of that summer, by you know July, I made connections with people, and the mm-hmm. person who I started coming to shows with, you know, like I say it was the join or die moment. He, it was too much for him, and he yeah. sort of like he never went back I to another show. This. But you well. know, then by that point, I'd become friends with Jim and mm-hmm. um, Cheryl Vanderwarden, who was, I think, married to um, Howard from the Exploits, the drummer, mm-hmm. for a brief, for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met, you know, there were, finally I started to meet people out our way that were into it. Did you feel like um, you kind of had an easy time of, of penetrating that crowd and, and sort of fitting in? I mean, because I hear some people talk about, you know, it felt very intimidating and there were definitely kind of subgroups within the scene and that it was very hard to meet people um, and, and, you know, kind of find that group that they fit into. I mean, did you ever feel like that? I, you know, I really didn't. Um, and you're pretty unassuming. Like, you're not, you know, I mean, super yeah. nice guy. You're not intimidating, so I just, you know, I, I found Philly to be pretty friendly. I mean, yeah. you know, it was a small scene. There just weren't enough. I felt like there were never enough, enough of us to be clicky. At that time. And there were some clicks, but it wasn't like other cities. Do you feel like it got that way over time? I guess so. I mean, maybe I just wasn't, you know, it didn't bother me because I had my, my my group of people that yeah. mattered to me. Right. I mean, just remember, you know, when Brubaker blazed into town, you know, with his double mohawk, it was sort of, it, and, and I'm using him as, as kind of a, a, just as an example, um, 
I remember hearing people kind of poke fun and not always be very nice. And it wasn't, it was over time that people really got to know him. Yeah. You know, be, before he was accepted. It was not like an immediate, like, oh, here's this guy, and, you know. And, yeah. Uh, right? I yeah. Mean, so, I mean, I do feel like to some degree, maybe there was, we were a bit of a tough crowd and, and kind of uh, judgmental to some degree. But maybe, you know, that doesn't mean that that was your experience. Yeah, well, maybe it's the fact that I, you know, you know, Brubaker was a much larger personality, mm-hmm. and some people might have been threatened by that, mm-hmm. you know. Right, so. who is this guy? And yeah, and in the end, I mean, you know, became very good friends with Brubaker. I know. Every, you know. It's so funny, too, because in, in a lot of these interviews where he is mentioned, everyone has very positive things to say. Yeah. And, and, and I've said before, when he actually did move here, I was one of the first people that did befriend him, mm-hmm. and we spent the entire summer just hanging out talking till sunrise on yeah. South Street every night, you know, and I, I found him to be very down to earth and very pleasant and, and it was very a different um, perception than what people initially had. So yeah, I mean he's he's a sweetheart and I'm going to stalk him this summer by the way because he lives right near here where we're meeting today. Well, um, we actually had ended up connecting <laughs> years later over shared love of like Waylon Jennings. Oh really? Yeah, like he had a Tell few, me about that. Well he had, you know, a pretty extensive love of old country music. Mm-hmm. And when we were in the Hasties, he, he, him and his brother would come out uh-huh. to some of our shows. And he knew his stuff, so it was yeah, sort of like... Yeah. Well, he was in the record business for a while, yeah. too. So so let's go back a minute. You started talking about Slippery Rock. Oh, yeah, so... And so applying that to there. Summer, and that's, what, the northwestern yeah, tier of Pennsylvania? close to Ohio. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I have this whole new group of friends who get me, and I'm already signed up to go away to school to for the rock. year and I'm, I'm depressed and you know I think I even you know at this point we, me and Cheryl are hitchhiking to New York to go to shows up there because there just aren't enough shows down mm-hmm. here and I, I think we went to some party in the Lower East Side or you know and you know got my hair cut off you know did, did all of that and it was fun and then I remember that I think the, the day before I went to college I didn't tell my parents but I took the car and Jim, Cheryl and I drove up to see Sadistic exploits up at uh, the, the two plus two or whatever, and, um, or maybe it's the A seven. It was one of those old. I know the A seven was a pretty popular yeah club for for punk bands. So we went up time, and saw so. that, and I think MDC was playing that show. And then I what drove all like? the way back with Jim. Got home as soon as I got in, my dad's alarm went off, and it was time for me to get up, get on the bus, and oh, go to God. Slippery Rock. So I spent a, a year at Slippery Rock. Oh. Kind so you of, did go. You got. I you, did go, and, and I had to find the three punk rockers at Slippery Rock to hang out with. Because <laughs> that is really out in no yeah. man's land. I went to some shows in Pittsburgh, but um, and I'd come home and go to shows mm-hmm. in Philly. Mm-hmm. But I missed like the whole that brief moment where the BYO happened. Mm-hmm. What What year were you at Slippery Rock? That had to be 83? 82, 83. 82, 83. Yeah, because I was a senior, and that was like around when I was sort of discovering BYO and, yeah. and all that. Um, tell me a little bit about your trips to New York. What was that like? I mean, what, what, what was the scene like up there? Well, it was just, you know, it was really, you talk about clickishness. I mean, that was a much more clickish scene. Far more intimidating to Very, walk into. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, um, Agnostic Front. I think I saw Agnostic Front's first show. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, that kind of scene was, that was a tough scene. But, you know, hanging with the exploits... <laughs> 
And with Howard, you know, it kind of gave you cred. Because, right, you know, right. Howard, oh, yeah. Howard he, was an intimidating-looking guy. the crap out of me. I yeah. don't think I ever said two words to Howard <laughs> because I was guy. afraid of him. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which um, is really ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, he was, a, you know. He did. He really scared me. I don't know. I was a kid. I, what do I know? But, um. So, yeah, we would, yeah. like, we'd hitchhike up there. Um, oh, wow. It's when you could still hitchhike. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah. You know, Cheryl would usually go out, have her thumb out, and then... Then you, you know, guys I, would I roll out. Says, hey, brothers, <laughs> we're a package deal. Did you, ever, did you ever get the no forget about it? Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. And then, you know, once a guy, a country western singer, gave us a ride. Do you know a, who it was? I don't. He wasn't like anybody big. Okay. But he had like he had like the rhinestone mm -hmm. jacket mm -hmm. hanging up. Oh, nice. And Clearly, he, gave, he was a rhinestone cowboy. <laughs> yes, and he gave us um, his autographed pictures and he was playing like the Grand Ole Opry. He's like he'd been doing the Grand Ole Opry for sixty years. Wow. And he was talking to us and we're listening. Mm -hmm. And he I think get, wrote, gave us a ride to like New Brunswick or something. Wow, where you could hop on the train from there. Yeah. Pretty neat. So your year at Slippery Rock, you decide it's not for you? Yeah, I, at that point I knew I did I wanted to be closer to home. Mm -hmm. So Because I could, of the music scene or just you well, yeah, that, and uh, Pittsburgh, you know, as dead as Philadelphia seemed, Pittsburgh was much deader. <laughs> there really wasn't a scene going on there. Not a lot happening there. No. Um, what, so, you, so what did your parents say when you told them that you wanted to come back to the area? They were okay because I, um, you know, I said, came back to Temple. They mm -hmm. just said I wanted to transfer to Temple, mm -hmm. so that wasn't a big deal at all. So that had to be, what, 84? 83. 83. And um, moved into into the city. My brother had a house in the city. He was an art student at that point. He had left college. Mm -hmm. He'd been going to college at Georgia Tech, and then he went to the Academy okay. of Fine Arts. So I just moved in with him. And where was that at? 15th and Fairmount, right near there, 15th mm -hmm. and North, yep. right near the Divine Lorraine. Nice. What was that like back in 83? It was pre-gentrification. Um, there's a parking lot next to us that where people would work on their cars and listen to salsa music all day long on Sundays. So it was a real education. Mm. And it was, you know, guys on the corner selling nickel bags of weed. But it wasn't dangerous. It wasn't until a few years later when, when crack hit that mm -hmm. it got dangerous and we had to move out. Can you talk a little bit about that? <clears throat> about crack? Yeah, I mean, what, you know, just, you know, historically. So, I mean, were you aware of... Let me just ask you this first. Were you aware of drug use within the punk scene? Was there drug use? Was it? Yeah, you know, I mean, there were people I, you know, I saw, you know, you go to those New York parties and people were huffing glue and mm -hmm. stuff. So and, chemical. Yeah, New York, a lot of the skin, right? The yeah. Skinheads seem to be into those yeah. chemicals, right? Yeah. But in Philly, what, what were you seeing? I, was, I never really, you know, at least maybe I just didn't hang with that crowd. It wasn't, you know... Our crowd was just more of a drinking crowd, but mm -hmm. you know, there was obviously people smoking weed, but mm -hmm. I didn't really see, you know. Hard I, drugs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was there, but it wasn't <laughs> yeah. any yeah. part of my scene. Right, but crack, that was more of a North, well, a city-wide yeah. in, in any urban area in the U.S. when, when crack hit, and that really. Um, yeah, it hit like, I remember one summer it just went, cars just started getting broken into. Yeah. 
and it just became dangerous really fast. Highly addictive. And yeah. A lot of people stealing for their drug habits. Yeah. So did you feel threatened at that point in the neighborhood that you lived in? I mean, did you? Yeah, I mean, because I never used to have a problem. I used to come home late at all hours mm -hmm. of the night, and it was always like this one older ex-gang banger sort of hanging on the corner, mm -hmm. kind of keeping the peace. Mm -hmm. And that was, everything was fine, but then, you know, I'd be coming home, you know, after that, all of a sudden, I just, people started doing crazier and crazier things. They'd follow you. You'd have to kind of make the mad dash mm. home. That's a little scary. So, yeah, so <clears> at some point, I was just, we moved out to West Philly to get away from it. So when you moved up to West Philly, I mean, at this point, you're already, like, pretty, and you're in the thick of the punk scene. You're mm -hmm. going to shows, you're hanging out, you have friends. Are you in a band yet at that point? Well, I got, I guess I started, I guess, 83, I met Frank and Brian Campbell. At Temple? Um, actually, I met them at the mall. Okay. At the record, <laughs> record band at the mall. In and North Wales? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, and they were into, you know, they were into hardcore, which was good. You know, like, they weren't just, they looked real clean cut. Mm -hmm. Did the record bin at this point have a better selection of they started, music? It was or? weird. They started having, you know, they would have a, a weird array of of stuff. So, you know, they'd have the Dead Kennedys, but they'd also occasionally have just like, you know, I remember having getting the Kraut record there. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a great record, but, but you bought like, wow, it. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Um, it's not prog rock. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I ran into them there, and um, he said he was a drummer, and Brian was a bass player. Brian really had just started playing bass. Mm -hmm. And the plan was for me to be the singer and to get a guitar player. And so we went through just a succession of guitar players, mm -hmm. um, trying to find somebody. Um, and we got pretty close with Steve Luckshides, who ended up mm -hmm. being in... He put our record out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he was with us for a little yeah. bit, and then he, he left us to join Wide-Eye, which crushed us, because we, you know... Was he in Wide-Eye? Yeah, that he joined Wide-Eye for a brief period. Yeah, brief that, period. Was, that was very brief, right? Yeah. And then he was in Oblivion after was he? Grammar okay. Corps broke up. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I forgot about that. I yeah. he was in... Okay, so Steve didn't work. Well, yeah, he yeah, so he left for greener pastures. Mm -hmm. And then I just, at that point... <laughs> he inherited us. <laughs> I, I picked up the guitar. I was just like, okay, well, we have to get... And that's how I started playing guitar. So, did you take any formal lessons, or you just taught yourself by... And actually, Frank knew more about it, you know. Showed me the bar chords, mm -hmm. and it was... And at this point, you know, Jim and FOD were, were playing out. Mm-hmm. And so that was a real inspiration, you know, because, you know, Jim was just a force of nature. Oh, yeah. And to see him do it sort of like, you know, enabled us to think, we can do this. Yeah. You know. And, and, you know, did you feel like... Um you know, a lot of people talk about, just in, in the Philly hardcore scene, that that really was sort of the crux of it, where you, you saw that you could actually pick up an instrument or sing yeah. or form a band. Like, you didn't have to be formally trained or spend years, you know, taking music lessons and sort of seeing these local bands, and especially... Uh, a Jim McMonagle. Um, Thank you. I can never say his yes. last name right. I get tongue tied. McMonagle um, is such a force of nature and has such high energy that yeah. you know, you're kind of like, yeah, I can do that. I want to do that. What was nice about Jim was that for all their, you know, thrashing potential, Jim, Jim was like me in that he loved pop music. Mm -hmm. You know, he had like a, 
deep abiding love for bubblegum music. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it got filtered through this energy that had to come out. So at warp speed. <laughs> yeah. So we would listen to you know he he'd pull out the weirdest you know goofiest records and he'd be like oh I love this you know. Do you remember any of the stuff he was listening to? Um. Well, you know, he loved, you know, he loved like the Bonzo Dog Band and all that kind of weird. I don't even know what that is. It was some of the guys from um, Monty Python, I think, were connected oh, with that. Okay. Um, and just, you know, I think, you know, just like he'd have weird, strange, you know, top, you know, top 10 45s from the 70s. I'm trying to remember, but, you know. He probably still has them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he didn't, you know, he wasn't like a, he didn't follow the rules of like, okay, you have to listen to. You know, he loved punk, but he was always thinking like, you know, I want it to be like, I want to be like the Who, or I want to be like this. Yeah. So yeah. It all of a sudden, made me think, okay, it can be more than this, even though at the time I couldn't make it happen with my limited ability. I couldn't, I could think it, but I knew I couldn't right. achieve it. So, where did you go from there? So you you did you get a guitar player at that point? I mean, you had you had your drummer, you had your bass player. No, we never did. You so were on you were on vocals. Yeah, we never. You learned guitar. We never found it, so it just ended up being we were a three piece at first, which mm -hmm. is pretty hard when your guitarist is pretty rudimentary. But we just, you know, we wanted to do it, and you know, we've been frustrated by lack of, by not being able to find a guitar. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, and I think we one thing we knew is me and Frank knew is that you know there was a formula to to appealing to the crowd if you're playing one of these shows. So we were sort of like, you know, our, at first we were just sort of like, well, what, what do we have to do to like get the, get the crowd moving? That's all we wanted to do. And what did you think that was? Well, you know, you had to have, you know, a few number, a number of really fast songs, some moshing slow songs, mm -hmm. and then maybe a couple sort of 77 in-between songs era, you know, those kind of... Who was writing the music? Um, it was always mostly me, but... Um, Frank Frank wrote a few, and Frank was by far the best musician in the band when we started. I mean, he was, he really was, you know, what stirred the drink. Right. Because we, we could not have done it with, um, without his ability on the drum. The right. drum really makes it all go. So, were you writing all the lyrics? Yeah, as bad as they were, yes. As bad as they were. <laughs> what, um... Tell me about some of the lyrics that you were writing. What what was the content? Um, I think you what know. Were they about what were your songs about? I always some sort of like a because uh, I was always into stuff like the Buzzcocks and I was mm -hmm. also into pop music. I think I always wrote sort of hopeless romantic songs, but filtered through um, punk rock. People might call it emo today, but mm -hmm. I don't know at the time. You know, like the Descendants. You know that. Milo Goes to College, mm -hmm. all those sort of like love songs. Right. So I remember writing a lot of those, like sort of just tortured, you know, right. boy meets girl, boy does not get girl. <laughs> Which is sort of the, what is on your mind self, at that age self -pity anyway. And, yes. Right. So not, not much in, in, you know, in, into politics. And, cause not I know a lot. I mean, we did a few of those sort of like, you know, we had a song called A Nation of Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and describe it. <laughs> well, you know, it's your typical, like, you know, people sheeple. are... Sheeple. Yeah, sheeple. <laughs> but um, it's weird. I mean, I was politically aware, and I've always have been, but I've never felt comfortable writing political lyrics because mm -hmm. I've never felt I could bring anything new to the, mm -hmm. the discussion. Mm -hmm. But maybe, I, you know, I just never tried hard enough. Right. 
Right. So Electric Love Muffin is born. Yes. How long did you practice before your first show? How long were we together? Well, you know, we had, Frank Bryan and I had been together for about a year. Mm -hmm. and I think we played 4th of July, a 4th of July show in 84 at Butch Lauer, who would be our lead guitar player. Mm -hmm. He had a party out, I don't know, I think I even knew him at the time, but it was a party out at his house out in near Limerick, PA. Mm -hmm. um, so we played as a three-piece there, and I think we were, we were actually called Sunshine State at that point. We were okay. not called oh, Electric Muffin. I don't Muffin. remember that. No, well, okay. you wouldn't because... No, I didn't know. <laughs> Nobody knew, right? Nobody, yeah. <laughs> So, so it was sun, it was Sunshine State. Sunshine State, yes, much more of named that. after Florida. After Florida, who came up with that name? I don't know. I think it was once again. It was I think it was an idea of um, we needed a name, mm -hmm. so we grabbed the first thing we could, mm -hmm. and uh, we wanted something that didn't sound hardcore. Mm -hmm. And that's the same reason we took Electric Love Muffin was we did not want a name that who sounded. Came, who came up with Electric Love Muffin? That was Jim McMonagle. And and what was, does that have meaning or did, does... What we had was, we had played a couple shows under Sunshine State, but we knew the name was stupid. And then mm -hmm. our first really proper show that Chuck, it was a Rock for Hunger that Chuck Meehan had booked. Mm -hmm. It was still a three-piece, but we needed a real name. And I remember you know Chuck saying, you gotta, you gotta get a, a real name. This isn't gonna work. <laughs> This isn't gonna work. So, People yeah, we, aren't gonna like that. It's so too happy. Sitting around with, with Jim McMonagle at his place and you know, getting inspired. Um, and Jim just starts throwing out the weirdest names. And I think, you know, we, we started going down the kind of sixties mm -hmm. strawberry alarm clock mm -hmm. lane, trying to figure out names that were as, as silly as could possibly be. And he came up with electric love muffin. And we laughed so hard, so we we told Chuck that was going to be it, and he he called me back like a week later. He said, "Now you're kidding, right? That's not your name. So <laughs> I it, can just it is see our Chuck name. saying that to you. You're kidding." And oddly enough, Brubaker, to bring him back into this, he came up to me and he said, "I got to shake your hand. I, I didn't think anybody had to, would have the gall to have a name like that." So he actually complimented us on it. That is hysterical, and and then it stuck. So how would you describe the music that you were playing? Um, by that point, we you know. We were trying to, you know, be more melodic. We definitely, we liked the idea of being sort of more 77 era uh, pop punk. Because it had a, kind of had a garage yeah. sound. Yeah, we, you know, we definitely, I was looking, you know, I was listening to a lot of pop and 60s garage mm -hmm. music. So yeah. that's really what I wanted. I mean, I didn't get it because I just wasn't good enough musician yet or I didn't, you know, yeah. know how to sing how to write for my voice yet. Right. But that's what we were always aiming for. But did that come down the road for well, you? Well, it did somewhat. I mean, I don't think it ever came with the muffin. I think we, you know, I think I always sort of pushed things on the band that they probably weren't as comfortable with. You know, and that was probably our great undoing. Because you weren't musically ready or, or well, just not the direction that they wanted We started, to you know, we started in one place and then as the writer, you know, I. You know, I was getting into, I had a roommate who turned me on to old country music, mm -hmm. so I really got obsessed with that early on. Okay. And so I started wanting to do stuff like that, and then I also was listening to soul music. And, I, you know, there's Muffin songs where I was, even though it doesn't sound like it, I was thinking, I want this to be like 
this is inspired by a Marvin Gaye song, sure. and I wanted to have a different kind of energy. And and you know those guys were game, and they tried their hardest to, but it never quite it worked because we were, you know, Butch was coming from, you know, he was into Adrian Ballou mm -hmm. and Soundgarden, and that was his thing. Mm -hmm. And Frank was a straight up, you know, punk rock drummer, and he wanted to bash it as loud as possible. Right. Brian was into Mike Watt and stuff. So, you know, we were all just kind of coming from a different direction. Yeah, everybody had their own idea of what they wanted to sound like, it yeah. sounds like. <laughs> and, you know, and I think, you know, yeah, I just kind of pushed, you know, we just, we never really arrived at a sound that would work for us because of that. But in the time, how long was Electric Love Muffin together? You guys were together for a while. We broke up in 1990, so yeah, from so 84 to 90. And during that time, you put out two records? Three. Three records? Yes. So apparently you were meeting somewhere along the lines to put it. We had moments that I was very proud of, but I feel like we never quite got... To where you wanted to be. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be kind of a very diverse band. And I don't think, you know, to be that, you have to be... Everybody has to be of one mind, and everybody has to be sure. better at their craft. And I certainly wasn't good enough yet. What was the first record? Uh, Plato Meat Hook. And who put that out? That was put out by, by our records out of North Jersey. They had Adrenaline OD mm -hmm. and they had FOD. Mm -hmm. Do you remember how many records were pressed? I think um, maybe 3,000, 4,000. Um, that might have been our best-selling record actually. Do you remember how many sold? I think we sold, we sold most of those. They actually, you know, we, we had the second record out on Restless, which was supposed to be a better label, mm -hmm. but we got much more bang out of, out of buy our records. They worked the records harder. Mm. Um, and that first record, you know, it's got a lot of warts. My voice is kind of all over the place. But there was an energy to it that I think we lost in later records because mm. I was trying too hard to to achieve things that maybe I should have just left, left alone or started a new band. You know, found like different guys to do yeah, different things. Yeah, cause. yeah. Well, and, and I think too, like, you know, part, part of being in, in, in a punk band is, is that sort of rawness and that ability to, or, or that it's okay um, to, to be a little bit all over the place and you can get yeah. away with it. And, and as you do get into it and you get more serious, like, do you feel like... Um, you know, uh, that you become almost too perfectionistic about it? I mean, does that start to influence how well, you write it did. and play? Yeah, I think, you know, because I, I, you know, I, I heard stuff in my head and I wanted it a certain way. And when it didn't happen, I got frustrated. And I probably should have just, you know, trusted that everything's going to, it's going to be what it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you're 20 years old, you sort of... Sure. What, what were... Um, I'm sorry, my mind's ah, sort of right. going all wanting to ask all these different questions about Electric Love Muffin. What were some of the venues that, that you guys played? Um, well, we played Abe's, um, the CEC Center. Um, played the Crypt, West Philly Crypt. Do you remember any of the headlining acts? Uh, we were lucky, you know. We all the we got to play with a lot of people. We were, you know, we got to open for the Dead Kennedys up at the Blue Horizon. Um, Lenny got us open for Articles of Faith at, out in Atlantic City at the mm -hmm. Elks Lodge, which was great. Um, I was just listening to Volcano Suns the other day. I remember playing with them at the Crypt. Wow. 
Um, our first show was with Gang Green. I mean, our first show with Butch. Mm-hmm. So that was a pretty. Was big that show. at Abe's? Yeah. Yeah, because I remember seeing. I think they had played two shows. We played. Yeah. I think they played early and then they played late. Yeah. It was some weird thing. But I remember seeing you guys that night. Yeah. And I remember always liking your psychedelic shirts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By that point, I was wearing psychedelic shirts. Every time shirts. I think of you, that's that is what I think of is those shirts. <laughs> so. That or cardigans. I wore cardigans yeah. for a while yeah. too. Well, you you will forever be immortalized with me in psychedelic <laughs> shirts. How how did you guys go over with the crowd? Uh, we always did pretty well. Um, which is why I always liked Phil. I mean, I think, you yeah. know, they, they were, Philly was a pretty accepting of different styles. You felt like they welcomed you guys with open arms? Yeah. No, Philly was a great scene. I mean, I think Philly had, um, you know, Boston, New York, even D.C. There was mm-hmm. a real cliquishness and, you know, a desire to be, you know, you had to fit into a certain kind of hardcore thing. And I never felt that in Philly. It I mean, was a sound. Yeah, Philly didn't have a sound, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean you had the Dead Milkmen... You know, you had bands that, you know, really weren't hardcore at all, but they, you know, they were part of the scene. You had yeah. Scram, who were yeah. clearly not hardcore, but... Yeah. McRad. Yeah. So... Ruin. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really, di- a really diverse scene. <laughs> Very, I mean, really, when you think about it, it was incredibly diverse. And yeah. you're right. I mean, I think, you know, you had... L.A. had a sound. Boston had a sound. You see all the major cities kind of, you know, had a sound. This might be why Philly never broke out. You know, all this seems to be doing now more yeah, than then, yeah. but you know, we yeah. always thought like she's gonna break out. I mean, the milkman did, but yeah, yeah. And and did you guys go on tour when you put out your albums? Yeah, we um, <coughs> after you know, even before we had put out Plato Meat Hook, it sat for two years, so we went on tour. Um, and we you got lucky. Rec- I'm sorry, you put the record out. Plato Meat Hook unfortunately was like delayed for like two years. Mm. I think it was recorded in 85 and didn't come out till 87. Cause Do you we remember what happened? Or? I think it was just, you know, we couldn't, we were trying to get it, we couldn't find a label. Okay. We tried to go on Pravda. Mm-hmm. That didn't work out. I think Mystic, we tried to, danced with them for a little bit and then ended up on Bayar. But we went on tour even before that. We bought a van and it was just sort of like the Milkman had gone on tour and we were like, they had said, oh, this is what you got to do. And they made a lot of, because they, they had a pretty meteoric rise, mm-hmm. and they had yeah. made a lot of contacts. Oh, yeah, quickly. They quickly, they were like, well, you know, you can, this is the person to talk to in Iowa, this is the person to talk to in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And um, between them, and we had actually become friends with Soul Asylum, and they, they had given us phone numbers of, mm-hmm. like, people all through the upper Midwest. Who so set up the tour? We did the first two tours, and I think the last two, we had a booking agent. So tell me a little bit about touring. I mean, what was what was the first tour like for you guys? It was sort of like a, a, a long three-week weekend in a van. We had a, <laughs> we had a uh, Ford Econoline box van. Um, we bought off of Chris Clabber's. Uh, Bye, Chris. It was called the Heave Mobile. And um, Chris came with the van. He kind of came <laughs> right. as well, the you roadie. had to, right? Because yeah. he hung out with you guys. You yeah, guys we all couldn't. Friends. We couldn't drive it really. Right, it was right. such a hard. So, so, so you had to have Chris come with you. So when you purchased the van, you purchased Chris. Did we you have to feed Chris. your pet too? Yes, we did. <laughs> so yeah, we just did like a sort of a Midwest South tour the first time. And mm-hmm. do you remember who you played with, or you know, um, some of the highlights? The highlight was definitely Minneapolis because we. Because Soul Asylum put in a word for us, we got like a high-paying gig at the Uptown. And who'd you play with? 
Uh, might have been the I think we played with the Magnolias, who were on Twin Tone. But it wasn't like, you know, we thought, oh, this is, you know, and people say, oh, this happens every night. It's always packed. And they paid us like $400, which at, you know, that time. So you played to a packed house. Packed house, and it was like Grant Hart was there, and Paul Westerberg, and wow. they was hanging out at the bar. We thought, you know, this. And were you well received? We were well received, <laughs> and we hung out there for a couple of days and played softball with everybody. And Did you think Minneapolis, I mean, they kind of had their own sound too, and I would yeah. think that Electric Love Muffin would fit more into that. They were definitely sound. sort of. Yeah, I mean, we obviously were big replacements fans. And, yeah. And Husker Du fans, yeah. so yeah. You know, we played with Husker Du a few times. Yeah. So and they definitely didn't fit into that kind of hardcore, yeah. you know, especially Boston and DC, that really hard edge that that music had. Yeah. So. So yeah, it was sort of like meeting like-minded mm-hmm. people. Well, um, what did What did they think of you? What did, did Grant Hart talk to you? Or did well, actually, they... yeah, I mean Maggie uh, McPherson, who was the um, booking agent out there. She brought him him and Paul Westerberg down before mm-hmm. the show to the dressing room, which mm-hmm. was a really nice touch because, yeah, you know, yeah. you can imagine being 20 years old. Oh, yeah, and, and you're like, like what? <laughs> so, yeah. And I think, yeah, Westerberg bought Brian a, a drink and he was like, you know, Brian was 16 or something. Right, right. And he's like, oh, I'll have a beer. And he's like, no, no, you got to have a drink. He <laughs> made Brian do a shot before yeah, he got on stage. Yeah. So... So then, so that was your first tour, and that was just a three-week Midwest tour. Um, the tours that came after, what what were some of the who were some of the bands that you played with? Um, well, like the last two were were pretty. You know, they were like across the country, sort mm-hmm. of six, seven, eight-week tours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd play with see bands that actually. I remember playing with the Goo Goo Dolls a number of times up in Buffalo wow. back before they became prom rock. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, prom rock. <laughs> they were just, you know, meth-addled right. punk rockers. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I remember playing with um, the Rhythm Pigs, mm-hmm. uh, Mud Honey. We played with good acts. Actually, uh, yeah, yeah. We, what did you? What was being on the road like? I mean, did you enjoy being on the road and traveling like yeah. that? Yeah. You know, did, were you staying in hotels? Were you staying at people's? We very rarely could afford hotels. The last tour, we could actually afford like a cheap motel. We'd all pile in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're staying at people's houses. Yeah, we would. You know, we'd show up and we'd ask around if somebody had a house where we could crash. And usually, what I would do is, um, we'd say, well, you know, some of us would sleep in the van with the stuff. And check it out, take a shower. Mm-hmm. And if the house was really kind of a, a real, you know, flea bit, mm-hmm. flea pit, we mm-hmm. would sort of like, you know, sneak out and go back out and sleep in the van. <laughs> you, know. you don't want to sleep amongst the fleas? Yes. <laughs> in Memphis, we stayed with one guy who had, he had spiders in, in containers. Uh-huh. And I remember, it's a nice, it's a, he had a nice apartment. And we came in and he's looking at it and he had like, these containers and there were like tarantulas in them and then there was one that was empty and he was looking at it and he's stroking his chin oh, just no. looking at it as if yeah. he's wondering what happened yeah. Yeah. and I was like I'm going to sleep in the van tonight. oh no no one wants to get bit <laughs> by the Peter Brady spider. moment where there's yes. a spider on your chin, chest oh my gosh that's funny 
Yeah, I mean, because you never know what you're walking into. I mean, when you're touring, I mean, even, you know, in Philly, you're going to places and, you know, shows in these houses. You're going to the crypt where, you know, the, the, yeah. it's the ceiling like seven feet tall. And, uh-huh. it's, you know, you're in these cramped little spaces. You don't know where you are, what what the environment's like there, right? So it's it's really a risk. And well, it, we, we actually stayed once in Atlanta. This was after the end of the last tour, which really had fallen apart. And we uh, we just we we were playing to really nobody in this huge club, mm-hmm. and I think Brian took off all his clothes. It just you know it got out of hand quickly. But he just got naked. Yeah, like the five people that were there. Did you one, just think like the hell with it? Yeah. Well, it was why like, not? I'm just yeah. It was sort of like who cares? <laughs> but one guy in the crowd just thought we were the greatest thing in the world, and he's like, dude, I want you to stay. At, you, know, you can stay at my house. So like, okay, great. You know, we're tired, and we just we go back to his house, we take showers, and then. Turns out he invites a whole bunch of people over. There's a, a raging party going on. Oh, wow. But we're really tired. Yeah. So we just, one by one, we keep slipping out to the van, and we're just asleep in the van. And then, like, 3 in the morning, all of a sudden, bottle starts smashing against our van. And he's angry because he feels like we've used him just for his shower. And right, he, right. He thought we were his friends. And oh, God. And I think he was really high. Mm. So we were like, we're coming right in, buddy. You know, and yeah, we, yeah. you know, we hear him go into the house. The van? Was and Chris driving? Did I think Chris was going by that. Chris was going by that point. But yeah, we, we started the van, just took <laughs> just off. I left my coat behind. Back. Oh no! It was terrible. But yeah. Well, he just, he, you know, certainly I think that the punk scene definitely uh, um, has an allure to to some very quirky odd folks as well you yeah know? so you just never know what happened with the breakdown of that tour that was your final tour yeah we um it was sort of a combination you know, i think we were we were always just sort of on the verge of like people kept telling us you know you guys are gonna break you're mm-hmm. gonna it's gonna break it's gonna happen and it never quite did and you know in hindsight i can see why it didn't you know with, we were what do you think well you know i think we just you know like i said before i think we were too little all over the place. Mm-hmm. We didn't really have a united front. Mm-hmm. You know, not long before that we had, we were supposed to play a showcase for Atlantic Records. You know, Carol, bless her soul, yes. was Carol Schitt's, Carol Schitt's Bank. She said, you know, you have a CBGB's Atlantic showcase. Well, it turns out we were playing with the Lemonheads. And the Lemonheads got signed to Atlantic yes. shortly after that. So it was really the Lemonheads yeah. had a showcase. Yes. And the guys told Carol that he was going to check us out. And then looking at the Lemonheads, you know, they had Evan Dando, who's yeah. a dreamboat, you know. Yeah, yeah. You can see why they would sign them. Yeah. They had a pretty good sound, too. And they had a good I sound. Like the Lemonheads stuff. Yeah. Every, everything, you know, they, they're the kind of band you would sign. So anyway, we're going to that last tour, and just, you know, we're thinking, you know, we're going to go to Europe, and things are going to happen. But then that, everything just started going wrong. And we, we weren't getting along, and there was a series of sort of bad shows. And then we're on the West Coast, and we go... And this was all still the original members yeah, with Butch. all four, yeah. yeah. And we get to L.A., where the label is, Restless. Mm-hmm. And, we've, you know, L.A. had that thing where you would, um, you'd give out tickets, and you get a dollar for every person who came in with your ticket. Now, that, you know, we used to do at the truck. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd give out the ticket, 300 people come in with your ticket, you get 300 bucks. Right. Well, in L.A., we don't know anybody. Right. But the label was supposed to, to take to care do. of that for us. Yeah. We got there and not one person, so the, the, nobody even from the label showed up. So we were, you know, that was sort of like the... Do you feel like that was a fair way to pay bands? No, not at all. 
But I mean, who? Where, how did that start? Because I'm I'm not real familiar with the the ticketing. I think it's it was an L.A. thing. I think it was sort of like you know, come to L.A., become a rock star, and people would just humiliate themselves to to be on the strip and be a rock star. I think it was more of a heavy metal thing. To give out tickets before the show and say, come see the show, mm-hmm. and then. I mean, because why wouldn't the venue just, you know, pay you based on yeah. your artistic... I mean, you send them a yeah. demo tape, right? You've got a following, you've got yeah. records out. And, we had I a mean, booking agent, you know. Right, and, yeah. And, yeah, I think it was just at that point that, you know, the Restless had a lot of bands, and we just sort of got yeah. shut it aside. Mm. And then, so we, you know, it's it's getting cold. You know, we're heading down south, and we're supposed to play Texas, where we had a bunch of shows with actual money involved, mm-hmm. and in Florida, a bunch of college shows. Mm-hmm. So we're like, okay, well, it's going to end in the warm weather, mm-hmm. and we're going to play In some, the sunshine state. Right, <laughs> and we're going to be making some money. We leave L.A., and we get to Arizona, across the border, and our van gets searched. And two of the guys had weed, mm-hmm. and they threw us all in jail for oh, wow. Thanksgiving Nice. And you know, Did they at least give you turkey with gravy. No, we got no turkey. We got mush. We got, yeah, we got you know, <laughs> it was Yuma, which is almost Mexico. Oh so we yeah. Got, yeah, we got yeah. hot peppers and yeah, there you go. Some tortillas. Nice. So, so we, how long did you guys spend in jail? Just one day, and mm-hmm. but then we had to hang around because our van our van got impounded, mm. and the two guys who who belonged to we had to. Essentially, they had to go through the legal system. We had to sure. pay fines. We had to buy our van back. So how much longer did that take? So we were there in Yuma for like close to a week. Wow. We lost all the and money shows. And I'm all sure. the money shows in Texas, plus all the oh, money they. No. So the the tour went from we were going to come home with money, money to pay rent. Yeah. And all of a sudden we had no money, and we had to miss all our shows from. We had to go essentially from L.A. all the way to Florida. So did it become sort of like this is your fault? You guys had weed in the van and, and yeah, because you know the other. band broke down to like you know, I was never much of a smoker, but it it was you know fair, but you know like there were the smokers and there were the drinkers. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. I could have very easily had gotten busted, you know driving with an open bottle. Sure, but you know right. it, it didn't happen. But that it didn't way. happen to you. It happened to them. Right. So, so it was their fault. <laughs> we had like three thousand miles of driving across the country to stew and not talk to each other. Oh, boy. So it was like a... A quiet ride. A very <laughs> quiet ride. And we missed every... You know, and these were good shows, like in Austin. We were supposed yeah. to play Tipitinas in New Orleans. Wow. I was very excited to go to New yeah, Orleans. Yeah. And so by the time we got to Florida, we weren't even Did talking. you play the shows in Florida? Yeah, we played them. And, I mean, did you feel like the energy was just so bad between you guys that... Yeah, we were all were... counting our... You know, I, I think we were already thinking, like, who do I want to get in a band with next? Right. You know, like Steve Maglio, uh, Art DeFuria, who's out there that I can talk to when I get home. Yeah. So when you guys got home, did you break up at that point? We talked to Carol and we had to, you know, we had... Was we, Carol managing you guys at yeah, that point? Yeah, she was our okay. manager. And we, you know, she at that point kind of knew. We played a few more shows and then she, she had shows booked and we played out our last shows. But yeah, she knew that we were sort of done. We just couldn't do it anymore. And so what, it, that was 2000 you said that you guys broke up? 1990. Sorry, 1990. I'm like a decade ahead of myself. Yeah. Um, now, since that time, right, so you guys break up, you go on to form another band. Right. I got very lucky. I mean, I knew this guy, Kevin Karg, who's a guitarist in the Hayseeds. I met him 
the year before he was actually a fan of the muffin and he turned out to be a, a stone cold country player and I wanted to play some sort of country thing and mm -hmm. he was already starting a band along those lines right you already had that in the back of your mind early on where you were trying to blend this country sound yeah into electric and he was muffin. he was a real band leader I mean he was a guy who could play any instrument had a perfect pitch, mm -hmm. you know, all the things I always wanted from a sideman, mm -hmm. somebody who could sing a harmony. Was he a trained musician? Well, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he took lessons, but he mm -hmm. was just, you know, he could, he, was just, he could do anything, really. Mm -hmm. You know, he's one of those guys who could hit a harmony, you know, running and not have a problem with it. So, you know, I just pretty much joined his growing, his cons musical concern at that moment, and we played, we had a show within like a month. And this was as the Rolling Hayseeds. Yeah, I think it started as the Hayseeds and became the Rolling Hayseeds, yeah. Who, who all was in that band? Well, it was Kevin Karg, um, Ralph Johnson, and at the first was Theo Regan. Um, and Theo was somebody we knew. He'd lived with Go To Blazes. Okay. And as our first show was opening for Go To Blazes, so it was kind of like we jumped right into that sort of roots rock scene. Mm -hmm. And were you singing and playing guitar? Yeah, singing, playing acoustic. Now you mentioned before we started the interview <clears throat> that the Hayseeds became kind of the um, um, an XPN favorite. Yeah. Right. So you guys did pretty well. You put out yeah, some we, records. Yeah, you we did put some out a tours. couple couple albums, a few tours. What were our, the albums? We had Tangled Up in You, uh, which came out in '96, and then we had um, No Place Like Home in '98. And what label were they on? They were on a Record Seller, which was a, a, a store out of the Northeast, this guy Neil Drucker. Now, was that a totally different experience than previous records that you guys have put out? I mean, yeah, Neil was, just, Neil was just in it because he loved the music. Mm -hmm. And he had other bands. He had Flight of Mavis, Buzz mm -hmm. Zimmer, <coughs> um, John Train, um, Frog Holler. He mm -hmm. still has. So I think, I don't know if he still has the label now, but he, he put out quite a few stuff, records over the years. Did he do all the promoting and the distribution? And yeah, you know, he'd do, the, do all that. And it wasn't, you know, it was a, a mom and pop thing, but, you know, he was doing it just for the love of the music. Mm -hmm. He was never trying to tell us, you know, how, to, how we should do this, the sound or anything. Right. So when, <clears throat> how many of those records did, were put out? I think we probably um, did pressings of 2,000. Mm -hmm. The first one, I know we sold through the first pressing, um, I'm not sure if we sold through the first pressing on the second one. Because the first one, we actually got a lot of airplay. Like, XPN was really good to us on the yeah. first one. Yeah. And was it, um, were you guys appealing more to a college scene, or, or who, who was your audience at Well, that point? you know, the weird thing was, like, when I wanted to do the country, like, when we were in the Muffin touring, everywhere we'd go, like, you know, I'd go to Minneapolis and, you know, stay with Dave Perner, and his roommate was... Mark um, Perlman from the Jayhawks mm -hmm. before they had become anything mm -hmm. and we got to talking and they were like oh yeah we they had tons of, we'd sit around listening to country records mm -hmm. go to the next town and all these people that were punks in the 80s were all like country I love George Jones I love Waylon Jennings <laughs> yeah. you know they all liked the yeah. same kind of old yeah. stuff and I think it's sort of um, you know there's that moment when the thrash doesn't quite hit you the same because you're you're just physiological changes are happening you know mm -hmm. you're no longer you know, maybe you don't have that burst of energy mm -hmm. 
but maybe more of a melancholy, and the country music just speaks to you in a different way. But it's not that traditional country either. I mean, it's it's still like a Wailing Jennings. Is it? I mean, I know he's big in the country yeah. music industry, but and I'm not like I don't know a lot about country, but right. um, but certainly not what I would consider commercial country, right? I right. Mean, yeah. Still, I mean, we were definitely. It was definitely about being trying to be more traditional, mm -hmm. being you know pre, kind of hat country. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 50s, yeah. 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So you guys did some touring. Yeah. And and how was that? Tell me a little bit about that. How, how you know compare and contrast it a little bit to your electric love muffin. You know what? Tell me about some of the differences and similarities. Well, the band you know the band changed bits over the years. We changed bass players. Changed drummers, um, we added people. You know, the band kind of um, grew to six or seven people at one point. You know, so um, the one tour was, you know, we had a show at South by Southwest, which was sort of, mm -hmm. you know, so we, we booked everything around that. Another tour was pretty much, we went out to Minneapolis and we had a really good show out there with the Honey Dogs. So we kind of set everything up around that. They weren't nearly as, I think, as successful as the muffin ones in terms of like, there just wasn't as big a built-in crowd. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think with Maximum Rock and Roll, Punk Rock, there was just always a built-in crowd, at, you know, if yeah. you were coming from yeah. somewhere. And it was a show. I mean, people were hungry for shows yeah. at that time in the punk scene. I mean, yeah. it didn't, and sometimes I think it didn't even matter who was playing. It was a show. You went. You went to see the bands. You went to check it out. Yeah. Right? I mean, with this, is it more of a bar crowd? or? I mean, yeah, it was more like... um. I think it was more like people who were into punk and then, you know, were sort of like settling into like different kinds of music. So they were people that they were discriminating listeners, you know. Yeah. A lot of yeah. them were, you know, the kind of people that we hung out with 10 years before, but they sure. now were sort of like listening to slightly different music. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so are the ro Rolling Hayseeds still together? No, we uh, we kind of dissolved after our last tour too yeah sort of like we kind of ran it ran its course and that was around 2000 okay and so musically are you still playing or are you with a band well I after that I put out I finally did a solo record which was like my long dream to make have a pop record tell me about that um well it was on record seller and um it was done over course of like a year and a half is it singer songwriter or well or? yeah it, it was you know, I tried to touch on a lot of different stuff. Um, it uh, it was everything from you know, there's a disco song on there. There's you know. Oh, now is it on YouTube? Now I have to go hear yeah, this. Yeah, well, is, I should have brought is you. Is it on Amazon? What? <laughs> I know, no merch. Yeah, you didn't I should, bring me I any should merch? have brought it. Um, <laughs> but you know, there was you know, kind of blue-eyed soul in there. Mm -hmm. There was um, you know, kind of ambient sort of stuff. I was trying to you know, just try and touch on a lot of stuff that I always wanted to do. And it was nice because I could fit the musicians to the songs. Right. And at that point, I knew enough good musicians so I could say, I want this guy on this song because he can play exactly sure. what I'm sort of hearing in my head. Right. And my producer, George Manny, um, he knew, you know, he just knew so many people um, from the music scene. So he hooked me up with Rocco Nate from the A's. Mm -hmm. And Rocco was the keyboard player and sort of the band leader. It was nice to have somebody who could really play, you know, anything I needed. Yeah. He also played trumpet. Um, 
he had a couple of his old guitar player friends who were sort of like kind of Philly trained guys who were kind of could play that kind of Philly soul style. So it was just, you know, it was nice to be able to try different stuff. Yeah. When did that album come out? I think it was 2002. Because okay. it came out just when my son Dexter was born. And it was sort of so stressful. You know, you have a second son. Sure. Second child. Yes. And you're not getting any sleep and you're trying to get this right. record you're in the tunnel. promoted. And <laughs> the you're parent to, tunnel. Yeah. <laughs> so are you still playing live? Um, I've done a little bit of... Uh, playing behind um, Brian Seymour, uh, he's a singer-songwriter. He's got about number of records out, six or seven records. Is he from this area? Yeah, he's yeah. a Philly singer-songwriter. Okay. Um, and uh, I haven't done much in the last couple of years. I was I, uh, was ill for a while. I was diagnosed with throat cancer two years ago. Okay. And, uh, Which I didn't want to bring up. That's I mean, fine. I, I will. Well, I will say, like, you have been on my mind for a while mm -hmm. um, as somebody that either Joseph or myself should talk to for this Loud Fast Philly project because certainly you have um, several decades of, you know, playing music in the scene, touring, and you have been an integral, integral part of the Philadelphia music scene. Um, but I had sort of heard through the rumor mill that you had been sick and I was very hesitant to reach out to you. Um, and... Um, Cordy from Ruin actually messaged Joseph and myself and said, hey. Yeah. And I said, well, actually, you know, he's been on my mind. Yeah. So, so I'm really glad that, yeah. you know, it, it has come. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, are yeah, you okay you know, now? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm better now. I mean, there's, you know, limitations. You know, I lost the upper range of my vocals. Mm -hmm. so I had to kind of reteach myself to sing. But, um. I sort of like to joke that, you know, punk rock caused it, right. you know, because it's in the throat. Well, but. you know, we were hanging out. Who, God knows what was in those, I mean, Love Hall. Yeah. You know, what was in that place? Like, between the mold, the asbestos, and yeah. then the cigarette smoke. I mean, it's, you know. But, you know, knows? I got lucky. I mean, I yeah. got, it got caught early. And you're in remission. Uh, yeah, you know, um, caught it early. I had good health insurance, so mm -hmm. was able to get all the, the care I needed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, I lost a lot of weight. Yeah. I think when I saw you last year. Last year, yeah. I was pretty thin. Yeah, and let's talk about last year. So last August, you played with Ruin at mm -hmm. um, the reunion show, and I first saw you at Dobbs on Friday night. So how did that come about? Um, well, Cordy had, had contacted me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess, you know, he put me in contact with uh, Vasco. And... <clears throat> Yeah, I was, first I wasn't sure what they wanted to do. There was something about, you know, what songs you want to do. I thought oh, it was going to be like kind of a, a review. And so I picked a couple of cover songs. I said, oh, well, you know, how about this song? He's like, no, you're going to do one of our songs. <laughs> I was like, well, that's strange. Why would you do your songs? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so they had a couple songs, and then they decided on one that was unreleased, the song Dry Rot. Mm -hmm. And what was that? Were you a big Ruin fan back oh, in the yeah. day? Because, I mean, I, really, who in Philadelphia was not a Ruin fan? I you think, know, Ruin was a big, you know... A big source of pride for most people in Philly, mm -hmm. and and you know they were you know Cordy was a good friend, and um, I practiced uh, Buddhism with them for a while, and I I still practice you know a form of Buddhism, and no, I feel like today. it I, I do feel like it definitely was a positive um, part of my life, you know, at a time mm -hmm. when I needed it, mm -hmm. you know, I was sort of in a, a bad place, and it sort of pulled me out of it and kind of taught me how to sort of look at the world mm -hmm. 
I can imagine that the chanting, I know that there, there is a lot of research um, on the brain mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of when things are going haywire, there are different ways to refocus and recenter oneself. And, and they do a lot of studies in, on music yeah. and certain beats. Um, but I can imagine that the chanting aspect of Buddhism has that sort of same effect on the brain, that repetitious sound mm -hmm. that kind of, um, you know, uh, pull, pulls everything back together and brings right. the mind into focus. Is yeah, that it kind of clears the mind. Of, yeah, and it just sort yeah. of forces you to sort of, you know, empty your mind and start again. Mm -hmm. And it can be hard to, you know, especially, you know, you have kids and stuff and sure. it builds up and you don't take the time to do it for yourself. Right, your brain goes in a million directions when yeah. you are doing... Ten thousand things with <laughs> yeah. limited limited time and, and yeah. resources half the time. So what did that? What was that like? I mean, it's an honor, I think, to be asked by Ruben yeah, to, no, it was. To, to come up and sing for them. What what was that like for you? Um, well, you know, it was such a great night. You know, just that sort of meeting of the tribe. Mm -hmm. You know, at Union Transfer. Yeah, yeah. there was such a you know. Um, you know, there was just so much energy. I mean, you know, I, I felt like, you know, it was it was a struggle for me because I was still really having trouble. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those guys were great. And, um, you know, it was so, you know, so positive, this, the atmosphere around them. It was. I yeah. mean, and I think everybody walked away feeling like, you know, I, I walked away saying, you know, unicorns do exist and they right. shit rainbows and glitter. Like, it was or really... Or sort of like, you know, we you know, win. You know, we yeah. were right all along. Right, right, right. You know, yeah. like, you know, those people yeah. that laughed at it, it's like... Look yeah. at us now, like, yeah. you know, culture has shifted our way, mm -hmm. and, you know, we were right. And what, what would you say about that? I mean, and, and, you know, expand a little bit, because it's 40, almost 40 years that this whole punk thing that everybody back in the 70s was like, what the hell is that? Yeah. And in the early 80s, we're like, oh, dear Lord, what are these kids doing now? You know, and, you know, we, it was um, seen as something very... Um, you know, um, with, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. So, so with the whole punk and hardcore scene, I mean, I remember getting on the bus and little old ladies wouldn't sit next to me because of how I looked. Yeah. They had no idea who I was, but I had spiked out hair and I had, you know, bondage belts on and combat boots. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I was going to steal their purse. So yeah. I think there was this whole view of what punks were. Um, fueled by the media. Fueled by the media. Um, but, you know, almost 40 years have gone by and the music still rages on. I mean, surely it's taken on a different form. Yeah. But, you know, kind of what, what are your thoughts about that and why it has lasted so long and, and, and why it continues to sort of evolve, you know, on this path? I don't know. I remember the, the phrase was always, punk is an attitude. And I really think that. You know, I think, um, you know, you sort of, once it's sort of got its claws into you, you have to, you have to live your life sort of that way, and it's not that you can't, you know. It's not about selling out or not selling out or having material goods, but it is about sort of knowing what's important, and, you know, and I do feel like it, those years in the punk scene and that attitude that sort of got implanted, is still with me even though I'm sort of I've become middle aged and I've. Have two kids, and I'm a school teacher. Live in South Jersey, Jersey still, in the rural. You know, the idea of questioning things mm -hmm. is important to me, and it does. You know, questioning authority, mm -hmm. and you know, when I think, when I 
hear about the latest, you know, boogeyman group, you know, like punk rockers were and heavy mm-hmm. metalers were and rap rappers mm-hmm. were. I always think, you know, you know, there's something else there that it's not yeah. true or it can't be, you know. Right. They're pushing the envelope and right. they're, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, corner yeah. one group into being the bad guy and mm-hmm. I know that that's probably not true. Right. So, you know, and I feel like you know, at the time, the 80s were a tough time politically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, punks were like one of the few groups that were openly sort of against the grain. And I feel like, you know, now more than ever, it's needed again. I mean, mm-hmm. government has a lot of power. People need to be standing up and speaking out. Do you think that the punks today are <clears throat> politically minded, or do you think it's more of a fashion statement and music um, interest? Oh, I'm sure there's politically minded ones. I'm sure it's, you know, it's always going to be some of both. Sure. But, um, you know, I still meet, you know, we had, a, we had a babysitter who, he's not really a punk rocker, but, you know, he, he had that sort of attitude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's off in India working on, you know, sustainable forestry and in Haiti. And, you know, he's, he's got that attitude. It's not like you have to do that, but, I mean, I know people that are lawyers, but they mm-hmm. still carry that sort of attitude of, like, you know, I'm really in it. I want to make the world a slightly better place. Right. You know, it's not just about me getting everything I can get my hands on. Right. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you, I know that you are a sixth grade English teacher. Yes. Um, and I, I mentioned before the interview that I wanted to ask you, um, how do you feel like your involvement in the punk scene influences you as a teacher? Um, well, I think, you know, it's really, you know, I teach English, but I also teach a social studies class. And I think it's important to uh, teach kids to be critical, to not, you know, and you see it a lot. It's, we live in a very, I live in a very sort of conservative county, Salem mm-hmm. County, New Jersey. So I get a lot of students who, you know, they're often echoing what their parents are telling them and what Which they're seeing. Which is typical. Yeah, and that's fine. But, you know, I always try to pretty much pose every question as to, you know, well, how do you know that this is true if they say, you know, you know the president or this politician is doing this? I say, well, how do you know? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you have to back it up. And I try to get kids to look at both sides of every issue. Um, one area where I, I get to teach ancient religions, which is great because we're pretty much a predominantly, you know, Christian Area. So it's, it's right. good to teach them that there's other religions that are very, that were actually very similar. Are know. they receptive to those? They are. Ideas? Once they see, you know, I think there's this belief that, you know, we talk about Hinduism, they think, oh, it's just they believe in all these gods. It's mm-hmm. like, well, it's a little bit, you know, there's a, it's not quite that. And you start to talk to them about it and you realize they start to see the connection of how it, right. it's really not so different. Right. You know, in the end, it's just the core beliefs are really supposed to be about the same. Right. And this is in sixth grade, you know, I mean, technically speaking, when you look at human development, mm-hmm. critical thinking doesn't really start to come into play until more of the high school years. Yeah. Um, but certainly, children are capable of yeah. thinking critically and beginning to see things from, from different perspectives. I think it just becomes more heightened and yeah. more important in, in the high school years. Do you find your kids getting excited about, you know, some of these different ideas and being allowed to question or asked to question um, 
you know, where their information comes from and, and is, you know, is this valid and, and trying to get them to think more along those lines and move them in that direction of critical thinking. Well, you know, we end the year with The Giver. Have you ever read that? Lois Lowry, The Giver? I have not. Um, well, it's coming out as a movie. I don't know how good the movie will be, but the book is great. And the book is, you know, it's a dystopian future where everything is supposed to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Everybody has the job that they're meant to have and their spouses are chosen for them and, you know, family sizes are chosen and everything works out perfectly. And as you know, dystopian novels never work out that way. <laughs> but it, you know, it makes kids think about what they accept as gospel because it's told to them, mm-hmm. you know, that, well, this is the way it's always been. So it's a, it's a, when I introduced the book, you know, it really makes the kids, it really works well at the end of the sixth grade because it makes them think about everything we've talked about and then how they can realize that, you know, they accept so much on just blind faith mm-hmm. and that they have to, you know, arrive at it um, by their own hard work. They have to look at, research it and look at it themselves. And, you know, some of them really do. And, and with, you know, with some of them, it's funny because I know that it maybe won't even stay with them. Like some, most kids have a really compassionate, um, empathetic core. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, see it, you see it in sixth grade, <laughs> you know, when you talk about stuff, most kids would give, you know, their, if they have two apples, they'll give one to the person mm-hmm. who needs one. Like it's not, I think that idea of like, well, I really need this. Mm-hmm. You know, most kids just aren't that way. I think it's sort of, it's kind of bred into them as they kind of get older. Mm-hmm. So What's you know, in it for me? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm trying to at least hold that off as yeah. long as I can for yeah. kids. Well, and it sounds, you know, what a wonderful way to end the year because as you're sending them off to their middle school years of 7th and 8th grade, mm-hmm. um, at least I feel from having a, um, a background in education as well, you know, a wonderful way to prime their young minds mm-hmm. um, toward their future academics in terms of, you know, questioning and and asking and and being a little bit more open-minded, excuse me, to the information that comes out to them. Yeah. Um, And I wish we had more teachers like you because, (laughs) you know, that's, that's, I think, um, really the crux of it is, is fostering that um, um, mindset um, in, in young people that it's okay to ask. And, and to wonder and to question and to disagree, and to be right? di- and not be afraid to be different. And you know, I think a lot of kids, it's still hard. You know, for especially for sixth graders mm-hmm. to feel like. Yeah, and no matter where they are, whether you're in rural New Jersey or if you're in an urban area, you know, certainly as they're coming into their own identity development and understanding who they are, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> can be a very very difficult time for yeah. youth. Um, I have covered everything, I think. I'm sure there are more questions that I could ask, but is there anything specifically that you wanted to cover or to say, or, or how would you like to close? Well, I feel like, you know, I feel like you did a good job of covering everything. Yeah. <laughs> I told you we would take you along that timeline. Yes. I do want to thank you. Um, it's my pleasure. I, I think that, that ending, um, well, one note I want to end on. Um, you told me earlier, prior to starting the interview, that your kids found your electric love muffin stuff on YouTube. My let's, students, yes. Your students. So let's finish with that. What what was their reaction? Um, well, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. Some people have posed some very grainy footage 
from mm-hmm. some. And I, I found a couple, a couple of videos of us from University of Pennsylvania TV studio, which mm-hmm. are pretty good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I posted them up, and I had actually seen some of my former students now. They're now in high school, mm-hmm. typing stuff into the comments sections. Oh, and what are they saying? Oh, you know, they're you know they're like looking good, Mr. K, and you know, <laughs> and uh, I think they're a little yeah a little surprised because you know I'm snapping the neck. And, sure, kids forget that we were kids once yeah. too. They they see us as these middle aged people and they forget that we were ever that we ever had a youth. Well, it's we're like kind we... of already weirdos down there because <laughs> we came from the city. Sure, um, you know, most of the people down down there born and raised in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the kids who really like music and stuff, I think, are, you know, they're a little taken aback and kind of yeah. thrilled by it because yeah. it's just, you know. Yeah, the hope is that they will, when they see that, the kids that are interested will approach you Yeah. and say, hey, you know, how do I get into this and how do I do that? Yeah. You know, so it's just another door for them to open, mm-hmm. I think, so... Fantastic. Well, thank yeah. you very much. I appreciate um, you coming to South Philadelphia to meet with me, and we'll say goodbye. All right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.